You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and as I say so often, this is a fabulous episode. Finally, someone has written a book aimed directly at what is probably the biggest listening group of this podcast, Middle Managers. B-suite managers, as my guest Rebecca Horton calls them, are the great forgotten when it comes to leadership development. There's heaps of stuff for beginning leaders and even more aimed at those few who make it to the C-suite. But what about everyone else? So if you're a middle manager struggling under the constant pressure of time and workload, expected to walk the seemingly impossible tightrope of day-to-day delivery strategic direction and organizational change, this episode is for you. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rebecca Horton. Rebecca Horton, welcome to the Team Guru podcast. Thank you, David. It's good to be here. Look, Rebecca, someone has finally written a book for middle managers. I've done so many podcasts. I've had so many terrific guests on my podcast. And people, if they're talking directly about the topic of leadership, are usually pitching to the beginner leader, someone who's getting started on a really conscious development of their career, or they're pitching to senior executives, the C-suite. How is it that if we've gone so long without having someone directly address middle management, given their vast numbers? Mm. It's a great question, isn't it? They are literally the neglected cohort. Middle managers for me are just about the most important thing in organizations. You know, everything revolves around them. And they are, in fact, the people who translate between the C-suite and those new managers that you were just talking about. But I think they've been lost in translation for so long because they got themselves a pretty bad brand when there were too many of them and they didn't have a really defined role. I mean, we've all seen those Dilbert cartoons and I think, Mm. you know, 50% of Dilbert's amusement is bagging out middle managers. Mm -hmm. And even the phrase middle manager has just got very negative connotations. Yeah. You're you're basically talking about bureaucrats, paper pushers, jobs worths. You know, there's so many appalling extra nouns that you can throw at those people. But in fact, they do play a really, really critical role in organizations. But we know so, they're not that. They're not bureaucrats. They're not just paper pushers. They, As you say, they play such an important role in organizations. Tell us a little bit about that role. And, and while you're at it, tell us about the way you dealt quite early in your book with the term middle managers. You acknowledge that it's not a flattering term and that perhaps people might even be turned off by relating to that or identifying as a middle manager. Tell us a little bit about the term, where you've settled on that and why they're so important within organizations? Mm, That's a really great question, David. I think there is a difference in in the middle management ranks between, you know, bad brand middle manager, who perhaps is somebody who's really there as a supervisor of others and who doesn't necessarily add intrinsic value, is really still an order taker rather than an impact maker. So for me, I wanted to split, you know, the middle management group in half and really say there's a an increasing number or an increasing proportion of middle managers who are in fact impact makers. So I called them the B-suite because, you know, they're next in line to the C-suite and they're definitely different to old school middle management. 
And for me, the defined difference is their ability to have impact, multidirectional, very complex, highly strategic impact, and run at an incredible pace at the same time. So this is a new breed of middle manager, really. You mentioned in your book that a lot of the big four accounting or management firms and people like Elon Musk, when they talk about restructuring, they often target directly that that group of middle managers that so many of us see as this one kind of homogenous brand, but you've just described they come in two, two large categories. Why is it that they're the ones that people target when it comes to restructures or someone like Elon Musk talking about the fact that he should just get rid of his middle managers and talk directly from his level and his executive level right down to the people who actually do the work? So one, did he do that? Do people really get away with doing that? And is it successful? And two, why are they such easy targets? Yeah, well, okay. So I'm going to answer those in reverse. So two, they're easy targets because there's a ton of them. Mm. You know, it's by far the biggest leadership cohort. It does. When you're looking at that cohort, you're looking at probably about 7% of your total headcount are in the C-suite. Uh, about 15 to 20% are frontline leaders, so those early career leaders, and the rest are the are middle managers. So they are a, a huge cohort in terms of management ranks. So that's probably why they're an easy target. You know, it's always easier to take more heads out of a bigger group than out of a smaller group. Your first question was really about, has it been done? And the answer is no, <laughs> not successfully. People talk the talk, but they can't actually convert it, hey? They can't. And it's a really interesting one because even in agile organizations, there is still a big lost in translation moment between the C-suite and their forward vision and their aspiration and their appetite and the front line and their capacity and their motivation and their engagement. And actually getting the C-suite to talk directly to the front line doesn't work day to day. They're literally not on the same page and neither should they be. That's not their jobs. It is the middle manager that actually is their translator. And without having that middle manager and really that B-suite operating well as a translator, it is like going into a foreign country and struggling to speak the language. You say on page five of your books that middle managers are generally complained about by frontline staff and blamed by top-line leaders. They're the meat in the sandwich. They're the people who are charged with Relating to what's going on at the executive level, understanding the strategic direction and organizational change, but they're also ultimately accountable for what gets produced on the front line as well. They have got such a tough gig. <laughs> they, do. they do have a tough gig. It's very difficult and, and mentally stressful to be both a leader and a follower all the time, mm. you know, to be constantly controlling the expectations of your ambitious C suite and trying to engage your workforce to do what they feel is impossible. Yet ultimately, they've got opposing agendas in many, many ways. And so to, to play that kind of neutral, centrist role it takes some really delicate navigating. It can be very exhausting. Now, we're going to talk in a little while. I've asked Rebecca to hit us with her top five tips for people who are middle managers, who are in the B-suite as as Rebecca has coined it, what they can do to become more impactful, to level up, as she describes it in her book. And we'll get to that really soon. But I just want to talk a little bit about why we've 
ignored them for so long when it comes to leadership development. And I'm going to quote you, Rebecca. I'm going to read a little bit from page four of your book. You talk about, you've, you've, before this, you've talked about why we need to invest in our leaders, not in skills and training, because those are out of date almost as soon as you've learned them, and not in accruing more knowledge, because Google have cornered the market on that. That's pretty funny, by the way, Rebecca. Instead, <laughs> we need to invest in the way leaders play the leadership game well beyond merely managing teams and work. Beautiful paragraph. What do you mean by play the leadership game? Ah, yes. It's a big mindset shift, isn't it? When you, when you move away from merely managing how the work gets done and you start to play in the bigger space of what work we're going to do, you know, that's a material shift from being exclusively an operational leader to being a strategic and operational leader. And making that shift requires quite a significant mindset adjustment. In fact, for a lot of B-suite leaders, when they step across that gap, they literally do realize that what got them here won't get them there. Mm. And they have to let go of some assumptions and some truths and adapt or even adopt new truths that could almost be countermanding what they thought they knew. So to give you some ideas about that, you know, the concept of saying yes to being asked to do stuff. When you make that big shift, you start to say no a lot it's a more. a very difficult lesson to learn, a very difficult thing to do. It's a massive relearning. You know, you're almost reprogramming your natural reaction to authority. Now, and I'm also guessing that it's easy to sell to this group of people the idea of executive leadership development aimed at C-suite people because we're assuming that everyone in middle management is ambitious for the corner office, that everyone in middle management wants to be in senior and executive positions at some point. So let's just sell them this idea of being that and teach them the skills to do that. But in fact, not only does not everyone make it from middle management to the C-suite, and we know by the numbers, it's not possible for that to be the case. We also know that not everyone wants to for various reasons. So I guess it's really important that we acknowledge that there is a very specialized set of skills that exist within this B-suite or this level of impactful middle managers. All right, Rebecca, so now we're going to make you earn your cash, that huge appearance fee that the Team Guru pays its guests <laughs> by giving us giving away your wisdom. If people listening have bought into this, they, they're middle managers they're struggling in their role. They're struggling between those two worlds of being accountable for the doing and linking what's happening to the strategic. They're the meat in the sandwich and they feel that way. They feel they're, they're being asked to do more with less all the time. They feel under enormous time pressure and everything that comes with being a middle manager. What are the top five tips you can give them to step up their performance and be a better middle manager? Not necessarily put their hand up for a promotion to the next level, but just be really good at what they do. Yeah. Well, it's a really good challenge that you've given me, actually, because, of course, the book says 10 ways. So to pick five is a tricky one. <laughs> you know, when, when I, I knew that and I, I, I know the way the book set out, I thought, well, you're probably not just going to pick the best five. I was hoping you'd kind of merge a couple to, to be bigger, <laughs> chunkier ideas and just articulate them so brilliantly on the spot in a way that you weren't, be, weren't able to do when you sat down for months and write the book. So I just thought you'd be able to do that on the hop. Of course, on the hop. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, let's have a go. So 
I think the first thing that all B-suite leaders will absolutely resonate with is the fact that the pace of work is out of control. So the first place to start is get it under control. So controlling the pace of work is the place to start, bar none. There isn't room for you to do anything else until you create some control. So to do that, there's probably a couple of key things to remember. You know, Number one, if you don't have your own priorities, you are at the mercy of others. So you're constantly being pushed around and you never get to be able to own, you know, own that environment and decide what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. So that's a really important element of controlling the pace. Another one is really teaching yourself to think strategically and act operationally. Acting operationally is what got you here. Thinking strategically is what's going to get you there. And if you can slow things down a little bit, you'll make some space for yourself to think strategically. Another big one in the controlling the pace environment is to stop starting stuff and start finishing stuff. We're all amazing at saying yes. We're terrible at closing stuff out. For some reason, we don't want to have a clean desk at the end of every day. So that would be something that's absolutely crucial because until you feel that you have the right to set boundaries and you have your own priorities and you understand why you would or would not do something every time you're asked, you're really out of control. So that's the first place to start. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. You know, that is such a great place to start, controlling the pace. You've got to make room. And I'm going to ask you a minute, what are we making room for? But in order to make room, have your own priorities rather than reacting to other people's priorities. That's a really nice poetic phrase. But how does that work in reality? Because everyone who's listening to this knows that they're at the whim of the person they report to, or even more so at the person that their boss reports to. And things can change at a whim. And it links to the third part of the point that you made, stop starting things and start finishing things. Again, beautifully phrased, Rebecca, but she's that's easier said than done because people who are in a middle management role really are at the whim of their boss and their boss's boss. That's true to an extent. So you can't control what's coming down the pipe. That is absolutely true. What you can control is your reaction to it. Mm. And actually, if you fail to do that, you're guilty of passing on that pressure to your team. And after a while, they'll start to retaliate to that. So your job is to translate what's wanted into what's possible. Your job is to manage the expectations of your boss and to help your boss manage, manage the expectations of their boss. So your role in all of that really is to be a really good negotiator and compromiser. If you're able to help people to understand the trade-off between what's urgent and important, for example, or the trade-off between time, cost, and quality, then if you're always in a place where you're like, yeah, I can do it, but this has to slow down, or this has to stop, or we won't be able to do this, or you'll have to pay more, whatever it is that you can introduce into that, into that moment gives you more control over the pace and the velocity of what's coming down the tube. So just stop being that weak middle manager who says to the boss and the big boss, okay, yes, we can do that. Yes, we can do this. And go back and sort of admit the new crisis to their team. 
Beautifully put. I love that. Translate what's wanted into what's possible. And it must be tempting for senior leaders, and we know why they do it. They hire yes men or yes women under them because they just want someone to say yes rather than someone who challenges them with logic and says, fine, but if you want that to happen, it means we're going to have to stop this or it means we're going to have to employ more people. They're the real answers. That's the real conversation to have. But you can see why senior leaders on the surface level, don't want that. But really, they need that. They need a middle manager who says those things to them. Now, you started this by saying, control the pace to make room. What are we making room for? Mm. We're making room to think. I don't know, that sounds silly, but a lot of B-suite leaders haven't been taught to think properly yet. Their DNA is to do. And we're making, we're creating the space to be more influential and to spend more time investing in influencing. Very nice. All right. You passed the test. That's one of five, Rebecca. What's number two? (laughs) Another one then is really how do you use that space to think more strategically? There's a number of things that happen to middle managers when they think about having white space in their diary. So a lot of them kind of freak out and run back into being really busy because that's what they know how to do. And that's where they feel really confident. A lot of leaders haven't been taught to think strategically at high speed. So the minute they're challenged to do it, they sort of make excuses. They put it off. And it's, you know, it's a fear-based and a skills-based piece. There is something else going on, though, and it is confidence. So when I talk to B-suite leaders or aspiring B-suite leaders, when we really get down to the nitty-gritty, nine and a half out of 10 of them will confess that they've got a real confidence crisis. And there is no surprise they have got an identity crisis. We've talked about being the meat in the sandwich. That's undermining. Whichever position they take, you know, are they on the side of the C-suite? Then they're being disloyal to their team. Mm. If they're loyal to their team, they're not being executive enough for their C-suite. So this kind of constant lack of certainty around where you fit and who you are is really driving quite a confidence issue into middle managers. And that's why quite a lot of middle managers are actually opting out of going any further. You painted really nicely in your book that situation that many middle managers find themselves in, middle managers who are burnt out, who are super busy all the time, pushed, pushed, pushed. If there's ever, for some reason, a lull in the storm and they've got time, they actually don't know what to do with it because they're not used to thinking. And it reminds me, I admitted to you before we hit record that I've never heard of the Eisenhower Matrix But something I am really familiar with, because I'm a massive Stephen Covey fan and listeners to the podcast know that, I remember his matrix of urgent and important work. And he makes the point that if you're always operating in the urgent space, then you're so exhausted that when you do have a few minutes to yourself, you don't then just flex really strongly and really smartly to the non-urgent and important quadrant, which is the golden quadrant, what you actually do is kind of collapse in a heap and sit at your (laughs) desk. And that's what you might find yourself on Twitter or on Facebook kind of vegging out because even though you're a motivated person, you're trying to do the best for the job that you're doing, you're just so burnt out at existing in the urgent space, a little bit of free time, and all of a sudden you just need to veg out. You don't move, as I say, into that that really wholesome, uh, not urgent, but important work. You're absolutely right. It's like asking a, it's like asking an Olympic sprinter to do, you know, to, to do their very, very best continually for a week and then switch off 
and go straight into a marathon. <laughs> you know, you just, it's just not viable. People yeah. don't, they stop and they lie down on the floor. Yeah. And that's exactly what you're describing is, is the reality for B-suite leaders. And you're really talking about, you know, boundaries, ultimately, this sense of how do I know when to change gear? How do I stop myself from just being in urgent all the time? Because the secret actually is it's really easy to be in urgent all the time. Mm. Our brain quite likes it. Yeah. It doesn't actually take a lot of heavy lifting. Yeah. And it makes you feel like you're contributing. It's safe. Even though it's, it's frantic and exhausting, it's actually quite safe. Whereas mm -hmm. what you're proposing, you said in number one was to control the pace to make room. And then you said in number two, use that room, use that space to think more strategically. That's not as safe as just being busy all the time, especially when you talk, when you think about how did middle manage, managers get there? Well, they got there by being good producers of stuff <laughs> when they were at lower levels. So when they're under pressure and when they're feeling busy, it's easier just to keep being busy, which is a bit like what you used to do before you became a middle manager. It's just that you're yeah. doing it at a higher, more frantic level, working across a whole bunch more things. So it's got that familiarity about it where it can be a bit daunting to ask yourself to start thinking strategically, creating a vision for the future, making a plan to get to that vision. Very good, Rebecca. All right. That was number one and two. What is number three? What's your third nugget of gold for middle managers who just want to get better? All right. I'm probably going to use up my last two cards on influencing because it is absolutely your job. And it's probably the number one mindset shift that middle managers have to go through in order to become a B-suite leader. Because there is a genuine, genuine feeling that your work will speak for itself. Mm. And an invisible leader is not a valuable leader. So for a lot of B-suite leaders or aspiring B-suite leaders, there is this sense of my work will speak for itself. My boss should notice and promote me. You know, managing up means sucking up. All these sort of awkward, self-effacing, old game statements. You know, this was the you when you weren't meant to stand out. This was the you when you weren't looking to make an impact. You were looking to fit in and simply do your job. Well, the you that is a B-suite leader does stand out and does have an impact. And therefore, you need to craft it and drive it and develop it deliberately. And there's a lot of aversion to that. You know, a lot of leaders consider the act of influencing as a distasteful act. What do you mean by influencing in this context? Because I'm guessing there is a lot of people listening to this, and if they're tuned into it and they're putting themselves through their imagination in these spaces that you're describing – they might cringe a little bit at the idea of influencing. What does that really mean? Does that mean I walk into the boss's office and try and convince them otherwise? Does it mean I do what exactly? What do you mean by that? Mm, well, it's four-directional, and that's probably what confuses people. I think a lot of people, when they think about influence, typically think about managing up. But actually, there's three other directions you know, dimensions as well. So managing up is is really important when you're becoming a more senior leader being able to have conversations, manage expectations, push back, contribute, you know, as well to strategy, that becomes an increasingly important part of your role. And if you don't do it, you're still taking orders. And that doesn't help anyone, it doesn't help your boss or their boss, and it doesn't help your team. So switching that being an order taker to an impact maker really does mean 
rolling your sleeves up and learning how to manage up and do it well. So that's one direction. Another direction that a lot of people loathe is reputation. So managing out. So the concept of self-promotion makes people nauseous. You know, they genuinely think that that's the, the worst kind of creep and that leading with their reputation is for other people. And it's not, you know, we all could rattle off a list of CEOs names in this country and there is no way they became household names or a CEO without managing their reputation. So this is just a, a naive barrier to evolving that a lot of leaders just have to suck it up. But what does managing your reputation mean at the middle management level of a large organization? I mean, we know what it means at the CEO level. I mean, Elon Musk does, and love him or hate him, he does a fabulous job at managing his reputation. Everyone mm-hmm. knows who he is. Everyone knows what he's trying to achieve. Love him or hate him, he's out there. But what does that mean for a middle manager, someone who has, I don't know, 50 people who are on the same level of the, as them across the organization, who are leading a whole bunch of teams of doers, who have three or four layers of people above them within an organization. What does managing your reputation mean for them? It's not a world of difference. And mm. this is where people get awkward about it. Mm. Because really, if you're promoting the work that your team does, you're promoting your team. If you're promoting the work your team does in, your, you know, in the environment that you work in, you're promoting your employer. If you're promoting the autonomy with which you're allowed to operate and the great innovations that you're able to play with, you're promoting your leaders. So in many ways, simply promoting others is something that shouldn't have that much cringe factor, but does. A lot of people feel that they don't want to break ranks. You know, you've talked about 50 peers mm. and why would I stand up and be different? Mm. And actually, I'm not saying that. I'm saying you all need to do it. Mm. That actually all of you need to be promoting the things that mean something to you. You need to be able to lead with your reputation. Your reputation actually gets more done for you if people know who you are, how to work with you, what to expect, what you're good at, what you're passionate about. If they don't know that, they're going to treat you like another number. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. serves nobody. You're not standing out. All right, good thoughts. Now, I interrupted you halfway through. You were telling us that there are four directions of influencing, managing up from being an order taker to an impact maker, managing sideways, which is our reputation, a little bit of self-promotion, tasteful, professional self-promotion. What are the other mm-hmm. two directions? The one that's really important and I think somewhat undervalued by C-suite is your ability to collaborate. So managing across. Now, I'd probably call it managing outcomes, but really what we're talking about is the work you do with your peers. As organizations get more and more complicated, we depend more and more on our peers to get big, complicated things done together. And it doesn't mean that's easy. So we talk a lot about we really want our middle managers to be better at collaboration. But in many situations, when you unpick that, The problem is that their executives have got conflicting agendas. So for them to actually do their job means they can't deliver the same outcome. And it puts those middle managers under immense pressure to fix for that. So their relationships, the way that they exert their influence with their peers becomes critical to actually breaking that nexus. Look, this is such an important one. And and what you're doing there, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I've misinterpreted this, Rebecca, but you're breaking down silos. Because if 
a middle manager is not managing across and collaborating with their peers. It means they're just either managing up with their the person they report to, and they're managing down to those who report to them, and they're working in a silo, and they have this hub and spoke relationship with their leader. But if a group of people who report to a senior leader, a group of middle managers, not just have a relationship with their leader, but have a relationship with each other and are creating things and collaborating across the teams that they represent, then that's breaking down silos. Have I interpreted that correctly to an extent? You have. Yes, you absolutely have. It it definitely breaks down silos. And I think what it does is it gives you a little bit more collective effectiveness and efficiency and a lot more trust. It takes a lot of the stress out of your day-to-day life because what you tend not to recognize is that you're constantly second-guessing what other people will give you. You're constantly thinking about the negotiation or the compromise you're going to have to make with somebody else. And when you haven't invested in that relationship, that's a pretty pressurized thought process. When you know each other well and you trust each other, that's an easy thought process. All right. And what's the fourth direction, Rebecca? I've, I've got a fair guess about this one. <laughs> okay. Well, this one then really is how you influence your team. So that's your downward trajectory, if you like. So I know I'm picking up like four different directions like under it. influencing. But certainly, I think these are the really, really important spaces. And we just don't make enough time to be deliberate and be planful about how we influence in all four of these directions. We tend to do it on the fly. And that's great if you've got good one-to-one influencing skills. And most managers at this level do because they couldn't have got there without it. But now we're stepping up. We're actually asking for much more strategic influencing skills. We want you to be even better at the one-to-one stuff and actually plan it out so that it cannot fail. And that takes time. You know, we need the room. That last part of influencing, I mean, that's what we often think of when we talk about leadership is the ability to influence the team that you lead. Of course, leadership is much more than that, but that's a huge part of it, getting the most out of the people who report to you, keeping them informed, motivating, helping to develop them, helping them to create a a beautiful workplace culture. That's what we so often think about when we talk about leadership. These are brilliant. You've still got two cookies to spend, Rebecca. You've talked about number one, controlling the pace, making space. You've talked about number two, using that space to think more strategically. And we've just talked about the four directions of influence. How are you going to spend your last two cookies? Oh, well, I was kind of hoping I might get away with like two for one on the influencing oh, side. Oh, you of things, want two but, um... for that? Oh, no. Oh, I'll give you two for that. That was a that one had some punch. I even had to draw a little diagram here as you were talking so I could make sure I asked you the right questions. <laughs> well, I think I'll probably, I will throw one more in. I think a lot of B-suite leaders have this assumption that to have C-suite impact means that they have to have a C-suite job. And I really want everyone to relax about that. What organizations need more than ever are high impact middle management. If you are doing that, you will have more satisfaction in your job. You will achieve greater things with less effort. Your C-suite will love you and they probably will tap you on the shoulder at some point, but you're going to be able to say no because you signaled with your reputation exactly what you want out of life. And if you don't want to step up, don't step up. Now, this is a brilliant job on its own. It's not a stepping stone to something else. Yeah, that's a really important realization here. And and it's something that we all know intuitively and through experience in life that not everyone at a certain level is just waiting to get promoted. 
that mm. people actually like where they are and they're making decisions based on all of their life, not just on career ambition. And just because you don't want to be promoted to the next level doesn't mean you want to get you don't want to get better at where you're at. And that's part of what I love so much about the work that you've done in this book. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the the feedback I get from, you know, big and medium-sized organizations is that they are really concerned about the succession gap, but they're also really concerned that people feel under pressure either to step up into the C-suite or opt out of leadership altogether. And of course, that's making the succession gap even worse. So they're very, very keen to see their middle managers invested in. They've got problems with the cohort being so big and therefore it's a very expensive proposition. So there's challenges to work through. But most middle managers have never asked for investment in their careers. They've got to a certain level where they were trained a lot and then they've been ignored. Mm. And the first person that needs to do something about that is you, right? You need to ask. You know, I had a laugh at the very beginning of your book, Rebecca. You were talking about how busy B-suiters are, middle managers are, and then you gave them the option at the beginning of the book. You said, hey, you can read the first half of the book and understand exactly what's going on for middle management, or you can flick to the second half and find out what to do. And I was just laughing because I thought your target audience are all going to flick to the second half of the book because they're all going to identify with being too busy to read the first half, which <laughs> they should have because the first half of your book is just as good as the second. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, you got that little tongue in cheek moment, but um, you're right. I mean, there's almost a competition going on about who's the busiest manager in the world, right? It's like ping pong. You know, I'm so busy. Oh, no, I'm so busy. Oh, but we have this wry smile. And this sort of apologetic fact that we're really proud of it, but we really hate it. And this relationship with busy, it's just toxic. Look, Rebecca, I have so thoroughly enjoyed having you on the podcast. Your book is fantastic. It's called Impact, 10 Ways to Level Up Your Leadership. You know, I'm sure the programs that you run, because of the content that I've read in your book, I'm sure the programs you run are fabulous. You're a wonderful guest for the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Jim, my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that was Rebecca Horton. I told you it was a good one. Finally, someone is pitching right to the heart of middle managers, the B-suite, if you will. I loved her tips. Number one, control the pace, make some space. Number two, use that space to think strategically. And number three, influencing. It's not cringe and uncomfortable, it's your job. And there are four directions of influencing. Up, move from order taker to impact maker. Out, that's reputation. Yes, it means self-promotion, but in a tasteful, professional way. And out the other way is collaboration with your peers, working together to break down silos, and of course, down. That's influencing your team, the people who report to you. And number four is you don't have to have a C-suite role to have a C-suite impact. Believe that you can be a B-suite with huge impact. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Rebecca on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me 
for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. 